Freethinkers, welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project contributor, Don Vi Jr. So our longtime listeners should know who our guest this week is. She wrote for the Free Thought Project for a little over a year back in 2018, but then moved on to bigger and brighter pastures and has now had a five-year career with the Russian news organization RT. Our guest this week is Rachel Blevins. Rachel is an expert when it comes to geopolitics and foreign policy, and she even lived in Moscow for a year while working for RT, where she really dialed in her geopolitical prowess. While she is back in the States now, she still works for RT and is quite active on her own social media accounts and Substack. Now, in our conversation today, we discuss some heartbreaking yet captivating aspects of the Israel-Palestine war, and I'm certain that if our audience hasn't been paying attention to the nearly 20-day-year-old war, they will have a solid understanding of what is going on in that region after listening to this, and if they have been paying attention, well, Rachel is a wealth of knowledge, and you will likely learn something from this conversation. So here it is, our interview with Rachel Blevins. Welcome back to the show, Rachel. It's uh, a bit of a surprise to see it's taken us, I guess, two years now to have you back onto the podcast again. Uh, the last time was in May 2021, and that episode was entitled How the Masses Are Conditioned to Accept Endless War. I have a feeling we'll be talking about a lot of the same things today because it seems like the U.S. involvement in these proxy wars is becoming all too familiar uh, of course, what most people are talking about right now is the Israel-Palestine war, which I know you've been covering. And uh, to be honest, I don't even know where to start with this mess. And uh, obviously, you know, I say that with the utmost sensitivity because um, so many people are currently suffering. But it does appear that uh, the U.S. is once again exacerbating the situation. The Biden administration has uh, recently vowed to respond decisively if uh, Americans in the region come under attack by uh, Iran. And just yesterday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken echoed a similar statement. Um, now, this is particularly worrisome because the U.S. has troops still in Iraq, uh, at least a thousand troops in eastern Syria. So, uh, you know, this could very easily spiral out of control and escalate uh, if Iran did test the waters. And, you know, with Blinken also saying, you know, the U.S. doesn't seek conflict with Iran, uh, that's, that's never a good sign, right? Because uh, whenever the U.S. says it doesn't want war, we trust the opposite of what they say. So my question is, with the, the U.S. claiming that Iran is supporting Hamas in this justification uh, for this escalating rhetoric and, of course, like the stacking of all these warships in the Mediterranean, uh, by that logic, wouldn't the U.S. supporting Ukraine be a justification for Russia to do the same thing and stack warships on our coasts. So um, how, how can the Pentagon, you know, justify this position? First and foremost, it's great to be back. I can't believe it's been over two years. It's been a busy two years, but you're right. When it comes <laughs> down to the topics that we're discussing, the countries may be different, but a lot of the principles are the same. And certainly the U.S. foreign policy has not changed over the last two years, let alone the last two decades. And it's notable when it comes to this specific situation, what we're looking at in Gaza to note the context surrounding all of this, because a lot of people will talk about, you know, this ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine, how it's been around for decades. And in doing so, you know, it can be easy to kind of miss 
the important points when it comes down to just how much Israel's occupation of Palestine has really affected people on the ground. You know, we're seeing that playing out in real time right now with Israel going on with this bombardment. Now they're on, I believe, day 19 or day 18, 19 of this bombardment of the Gaza Strip. They've cut off all fuel, electricity, water, and humanitarian aid, save a few trucks that have been allowed in. And in doing so, what they're doing is they are cutting off an estimated 2.3 million people that are in the Gaza Strip. This is one of the most densely populated areas on earth. They are cutting them off from any sort of outside help. And Israel controls everything there. Now, for the American people who are following along with this and may not be as familiar with this conflict specifically, I think it's notable that there are a few different parallels that are very similar to what we've seen here in the U.S. For example, when you have a group like Hamas, Israel actually helped them to become what they are today a few decades ago because Israel was concerned about the Palestinian Liberation Organization becoming too powerful. They wanted something to destabilize that, as we've seen the U.S. do with ISIS, as we saw them do in Ukraine with the neo-Nazis that they funded there. And when it came to the specific attack on October 7th that then led to what Israel is doing now, Israel had multiple warnings about this, i.e. 9-11. You know, some of the things that we look back and we say, oh, wait a second, weren't there security warnings? Yes, Egypt was widely warning Israel that an attack was going to take place, that Hamas was planning something, and Israel did nothing in response to it. And now we see the current conflict. So to come back up to speed with your question where the Pentagon stands in all of this, the U.S. is showing, as it has shown for a number of decades now, that it is the war party. And anytime there is a war, the U.S. is right there in the forefront of that. We saw that with Ukraine, where in early 2022, there were attempts by Russia and Ukraine to have peace talks that could have saved us from the year and a half of war that we've seen. And the U.S. and the U.K. intervened and refused to allow those peace talks to happen. And now we're seeing that happen all over again in Gaza, where there have been a number of attempts through the United Nations Security Council to pass resolutions calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. And the wording of those resolutions, it has condemned Hamas, it's condemned the attack that they've carried out. It has simply called for the availability of humanitarian aid to get to the people of Gaza who right now are seeing everything collapsing around them as they are being bombed at an alarming rate. And it is the United States that is in there today. It vetoed a third resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire, claiming that they did not like the language of it. So certainly more of the same when it comes to what we're seeing from the United States. I think that's probably one of the biggest uh, red flags that we're seeing here is just the brazenness with which the United States is not only continuing the warmongering that it's uh, that it has carried out for the past several decades, but even more so. I was talking to Jason about this uh, just a little bit earlier that there was a report that recently came out that essentially showed that um, the White House, via John Kirby, has now essentially said that there is going to be a continuation of civilian deaths in Gaza, mm-hmm. whereas they never like openly said, we don't give a crap about civilian lives. But now they're just openly saying, we don't care if civilians die. And we know historically the U.S. has always... Uh, you know, given a very much disregard to civilian lives. We know with the leaks of the drone program via whistleblower Daniel Hale that the drone program kills upwards of 90% innocent civilians. That has never been corrected by the Pentagon. They've never taken action to reduce civilian casualties. But now just brazenly saying civilians are going to keep dying in Gaza because that's just war. I think we've reached a new precipice of American imperialism, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think certainly in this case, too, because it's one thing, as the United States often says, they refer to civilian deaths as collateral damage, right? They say we were targeting a terrorist suspect in Syria and we bombed this building and a few civilians died. Well, that's collateral damage. And that's when you typically get someone like John Kirby who comes in and says, oh, you know, it's war. It happens. Civilians die. That's sad. 
But in this case, what we're seeing is this bombardment carried out by Israel. They dropped 6,000 bombs in the first six days. And they bragged about that. We know that number because Israel came out and was bragging about how many bombs that they dropped on Gaza. But the civilian death toll that we're seeing here is just startling. I mean, Israel, of course, is saying that they are responding to this attack by Hamas that was carried out on October 7th. But when you look at who's actually being impacted by the bombs, it is largely civilians. You know, if you're looking at a death toll of around 6,500 people in less than three weeks, and the overwhelming majority of those are civilians, at least 40%, if not more of those deaths are children. And in Gaza right now, you have around 1 million children. So Israel is telling the international community, oh, we are, you know, going after Hamas. But in reality, they're not really waging war on Hamas. They're waging war on a civilian population that has no possible way to fight back against them. They are actively bombing civilian structures. They're committing war crimes on a level that I personally have never seen before, you know, when it comes to collective punishment, when it comes to the forced displacement of people, they told around 1.1 million people in the north half of Gaza that they had 24 hours to move to the southern half of Gaza. And then when thousands of the people there complied, they started bombing the convoys. And the video and the photos that are coming out on social media are just horrific. But when you see these convoys before they were bombed, there was no possible way to look at that and to not be aware that that was mainly women and children who were in the streets and were on their way to the southern half of Gaza. So for Kirby to make a statement like that, when you're talking about a people that have no possible way of defending themselves, you know, you're talking about Israel targeting hospitals and targeting churches where people are going in hopes that they may be safe. You know, they're in a position right now where they look at their home or their apartment building that they're living in and they're seeing other buildings around them destroyed. So they say, okay, I'll go to a hospital because under international law, a hospital is supposed to be protected. And then Israel comes in and bombs them and they die. And there's really not nearly enough movement from the international community right now when it comes to pushing forward this to stop. I mean, yes, we are seeing those resolutions uh, with the United Nations Security Council where they are taking them up and they are having those discussions, but time is certainly running out for the civilians on the ground as now you have the Gaza Health Ministry saying that they're healthcare system is essentially out of service. And while you have a death toll, you know, with over 6,000 people being killed, you also have around 16,000 people who have been injured. So now the concern is what happens for all of those tens of thousands of people who need help from the hospital, but aren't able to get that help because it all has been cut off. And the Biden administration right now is showing not just a lack of care for civilian life, but they are showing that they view the Palestinian people as less than human, which is really does go in line with what we have heard from Israeli officials when it comes to their rhetoric on this entire situation. Certainly, certainly. And I think when it comes to this whole thing, it, it's probably appropriate to categorize it as, as a genocide. You know, we've, we've had the United Nations uh, and as well as human rights organizations, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch over the years uh, openly uh, confirmed that Israel is guilty of apartheid, which is basically one step below genocide. But even on October 10th, I had made a post uh, talking about what had occurred uh, back in 2021, where I had covered what was happening in Israel with the uh, Sheikh Jarrah displacements and um, the Knesset was attempting to get Netanyahu out of power and all of that business that was happening. And then all of a sudden, these mass attacks started happening in Gaza. And at that time, I said, well, isn't it interesting that under Israel's laws, Netanyahu cannot be removed from power while they're in military conflict, while they're waging these attacks in Gaza. Mm. So it seems to me that 
at the time, the intention was they were trying to drag that conflict out as long as possible so that he could get support from Knesset, stay in power, expand the uh, Sheikh Jarrah settlement expansions, which were being challenged by the Israeli Supreme Court. And that's precisely what happened. And so when I saw your coverage talking about the possibility that this could potentially be a false flag in the sense that Israel knew it was coming. They were given warnings not only by Egypt, but also the CIA telling them that they had chatter communications that Hamas was planning an attack. It seems as though, especially if we look at the extremist language used by Netanyahu, used by uh, Ben Gavir, used by so many of these officials in Netanyahu's newest administration that he appointed this past December when he became prime minister again, the very sort of fascistic language, the uh, dehumanization language used against Palestinian people, even recently saying that they're fighting human animals. And um, one of their former prime ministers interviewed on Sky News recently declaring that there are no innocent or no, the president of Israel said there are no innocent civilians and the former prime minister had mentioned, or defense minister, excuse me, had mentioned that, oh, I don't care about civilians, even if babies are issued, because that was the Sky News interviewer asked him, well, what what are you doing to prevent the the death of innocence, of, of infants in hospitals? And he said, that's not my concern. And, you know, these people are my enemy. And, and my thought to that when I retreated it was, how in God's name are children, infants, your enemies? So there's a very dehumanizing language that we're seeing. And the multiple human rights experts have brought up now that with the language combined with the behavior and the massive amounts of civilian casualties, it is appropriate to categorize this as a genocide. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And I think that, you know, we're seeing it happen right in front of our eyes and talking to people on the ground there. There is just a lot of frustration and they have lived for years under Israeli occupation. They know that just how bad it can get. And one of the things I've heard is that this is the worst that people have ever seen it. And you've got people who went through 2014. I mean, we remember back to the summer of 2014 when Israel was openly bombing Gaza then and how bad it was. And now is like that on steroids. And I also think it's important to note that the overwhelming majority of the people in the Gaza Strip, they're refugees who have been driven out of Israel because Israel wants to have a purely Jewish state. They don't want to have Palestinian people on their land. They think that that is something that they are entitled to. And certainly right now, there is no one who is loving this conflict more than Netanyahu. As you noted, he has had a number of legal troubles on his end, and now no one's talking about that. And now he's got this special emergency unity government that he has put together. And he's just kind of sitting there hoping that everyone will continue to stay on board with the cause. And it's very convenient that you have Israel now in this position where they claim that they are justified in attacking Gaza. The only thing that possibly stops that or combats that is the fact that we're getting to the point now with this high civilian death toll happening in just two and a half weeks and continuing to go on. You put the international community in a place where They have to say, okay, we have to step in at some point. And I think that you're really seeing that specifically in the Arab world. You're seeing that happen right now in a way that it hasn't happened in a very long time, if ever. You know, initially before October 7th, you had a situation where Iran and Saudi Arabia earlier this year normalized ties. Now, they did that with the help and the mediation of China. The United States was not remotely involved in that. In fact, the U.S. looked kind of ridiculous because when they were asked about it, members of the Biden administration just kind of had to shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, that's nice that China was able to do this. We can't explain why we haven't been able to do this. But what the U.S. did was it decided that it would come in and it would help to normalize ties between Saudi Arabia and Israel, that that would be its own version that it carried out. Well, as soon as Israel started bombing Gaza this month, Saudi Arabia said, nope, we're not doing this. We're pulling back from any sort of normalization of ties. And yet Saudi Arabia is still 
working with Iran. And you're seeing a unity among the Arab world because they are getting sick and tired and frustrated of what Israel is doing. Now, I know when it comes to Saudi Arabia, obviously they have a lot of issues when it comes to human rights abuses on their end. But I do think that it is notable to see the ways in which these countries are looking at working together. And at the same time, their allies are countries like Russia and China. So we see this continuation of what we have seen in Ukraine specifically, where the U.S. overplayed its hand in a way. It decided that it was going to carry out this massive sanctions campaign against Russia. It expected that the rest of the world was going to jump on board, just like much of the world did with the war on terrorism that was carried out. And what they found was that that did not happen. You had far too many countries around the world that rely heavily on Russia. And that put them in a place where they said, well, I cut off my ties with Russia. What do I get? I get the U.S. approval. Well, that doesn't help, you know, with my oil, with my natural gas, with all of the other resources that I import from Russia. So they didn't do that. And now Russia is still standing and it's still fine. And the frustration that has been built up from what the United States has done in Ukraine has put nations around the world in a place where they are wanting to limit U.S. hegemony, essentially. They're wanting to move to a multipolar world order where more than one country has a say in what happens in the world. And I think you're certainly seeing that push in the Arab world right now because they're watching the number of civilians that are being killed in Gaza. And they're realizing if Israel has its way, it is going to wipe 2.3 million people off of the stretch of land. And then it is going to take that stretch of land over. Because as you noted there, you know, the rhetoric that we've seen from these Israeli officials is just incredibly genocidal. I mean, they are referring to Palestinian people as animals. They're referring to children as animals, and they are attempting to dehumanize them in order to justify what they were, what they are doing. And so that certainly leads to hope at the end of the day that we are going to see more pushback from the international community as a whole. Yeah, not to mention uh, the media is in lockstep to uh, unison, you know, in support of Israel and all uh, basically everything that's been going on, Um, which to a certain degree, you know, with the the initial attack mounted by Hamas, I I think there was some justification for that. But, you know, at this point, I think there's been, what, 5,000 plus civilians killed within Palestine. Uh, that that far exceeds the the 13 1400 number in Israel and uh, this only seems to be the beginning you know that the ground invasion hasn't even begun yet so uh in my opinion you know this this is every minute's of the essence right for the international community and having some type of uh, resolution or way to uh, step in and maybe try to hit the brakes a, a bit here but it doesn't really feel like uh, that's happening quick enough and for the people who are on the ground, the people who are enduring these bombing campaigns, uh, even somebody like uh, Congressman or ex-Congressman Justin Amash losing family members, uh, this is absolutely tragic and of the utmost importance. So uh, hopefully we see some resolve coming here uh, in, in the near future. And um, yeah, you know, speaking of, uh, we, were, we were talking about all these convoys uh, that, that's been building up. I was wondering if you had any information about uh, what is it, the hundred plus uh, trucks of aid that are sitting on the the Egypt border just waiting to actually enter uh, Gaza? Because uh, last I heard, it was at least 90. I've heard uh, estimates up to 100 that are sitting idle, just just waiting to to enter. And, uh, you know, I've heard some people, some critics say, well, look, like they don't know what's in these trucks. Like they have to vet each and every one. Uh, that, that could be supplying uh, Hamas with some of these trucks. And to me, I don't know. I mean, obviously, this is um, you know, not, not the most scientific observation, but like, are these people also questioning $140 you know, billion plus that's going to Ukraine in aid and, and weapons uh, and equipment? I don't think they're even remotely as close to concern, being as concerned about that. So there's obviously some double standards here going on. Uh, as far as just the the general sentiment from the public. But do you know what's currently happening with uh, these, I guess, this convoy of, uh, you know, trucks of aid 
And, you know, how many people are really relying on this? I mean, as we were talking about, the hospitals are overwhelmed. Um, I don't even know how the hospitals are even functioning right now without, uh, you know, water, power, electricity. So do you have any insight on that? Yeah, yeah. When it comes to those aid trucks and specifically that area. So when you're looking at the Gaza Strip, one of the reasons that it is often referred to as the world's largest open air prison is because one, there is no going in and out of it unless Israel allows you to. And two, it is completely cut off from any resources that the people there are able to be making themselves. You know, we talk about sustainability and wanting to grow your own food and that sort of thing. The people of Gaza do not have that option. So they are relying entirely on what is allowed to be brought in. So when we're talking about trucks of humanitarian aid, that is vital to the people there. In fact, when it comes to the position that they're coming in from, they're coming in from Egypt through the Rafah crossing. And one of the things that Israel did initially was it said, okay, we're putting this complete blockade on the Gaza Strip, nothing in or out of it. And they insisted that Egypt close down that crossing. Well, when there was some talk about possibly aid trucks being able to go through it, Israel went in and they repeatedly bombed the Rafah crossing. They bombed the only way for that aid to get in and out. And so right now you are seeing some repairs, but there's still the threat of Israel bombing it again. You had President Biden go to Tel Aviv last week and he announced that the U.S. was going to send $100 million worth of humanitarian aid to Gaza, of course, as he still supplies Israel with billions. And the question was, how are these trucks going to get in? Now, I've seen that there has been some movement in and out. There's been a handful of humanitarian aid trucks that have been allowed into the Gaza Strip. But the problem, of course, becomes that you have 2.3 million people. So if you're allowing in, you know, 20 aid trucks here and there, that is barely making a dent in what is needed. In fact, even Oxfam is speaking out now, and they are saying that Israel is guilty of starving the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip because they're only getting one or two percent of the food through those aid trucks that they're that they normally get in on a daily basis. So they are completely reliant on what is allowed to cross through those ports. And I think that that's why this is so important and timely that we do get movement on this because you have people dying and you have people that are relying on this aid and when it's not getting to them, it is going to have a catastrophic impact. You do see, you know, those warnings, certainly the United Nations has warned and said that we are in for a catastrophe if something is not done. And, you know, as you noted there, when it comes to the media coverage of all of this, right, they are completely in lockstep with the establishment on this. That is certainly nothing new when it comes to Israel and their coverage of it. I know thinking back to 2014, that was a major issue then. It still continues to be an issue now. The only thing that has changed now, I would say, over the last nearly a decade since we really saw this major outbreak of war in Gaza has been that now it feels like social media has played more of a role in getting more information out there. You know, you see more images and videos, certainly on Twitter or X, I guess, as it's now called, you see more images and videos of the Palestinian people who are just in ruins. You see parents losing their children and you're watching those graphic images in real time. And it's a reminder that that's what the mainstream media doesn't show you. And they very purposely do that when it comes to the results of United States airstrikes. We don't see the results of that. We don't see the communities that are destroyed by them. But now that also comes into play when it comes to a close U.S. ally like Israel. That same policy is in place. And so I think it's really powerful to see how social media has been playing a role even with all of the censorship that is out there because it is still out there but i think that the information that is getting out there that there's so much of it that it has almost taken over to the point where people are having to now pay attention now granted that's not just for the palestinian people i know that that also counts for a lot of people that are pro israel and we saw that play out when you had this reporter on the ground claim that Hamas had beheaded 40 babies. And 
that claim spreads like wildfire. I mean, I remember logging on and my entire newsfeed was just people saying there were 40 babies that were beheaded. And then people start asking questions and they're like, okay, well, one, where is the proof? Two, where did this claim come from? It turns out that she got it from a soldier who is known for essentially spreading propaganda like that. And then you had some pushback against it. So it is on both sides, but I do think that there is more of a conversation about it and people at least seem to be a little more aware than they were nine years ago. Absolutely. And that 40 dead babies story uh, got shut down relatively quick. I mean, it was like maybe six hours, eight hours, you know, it was flying around the internet. And then it seemed like social media just shut it down uh, very quickly. And maybe it was just because it was so hyperbolic, you know, maybe people just uh, could sense that it was straight up war propaganda. But that actually brings me to uh, a point I had jotted down here that I wanted to talk about, which was that hospital bombing last week, the Al Ali Arab uh, hospital bombing. I think that I think that's what the name of the hospital. Of course, it was horrific, <laughs> but it seemed to be a bit of a tipping point in the current information war, where many of us, I, I mean, even the veterans in this information war, uh, were kind of confused and wary about the information we received. And you know, obviously, the, the mainstream media didn't get it any better. I think even you know, Forbes, uh, Time Magazine, uh, CBS. I mean, they were all covering the same reports that were indicating that 500 people were killed uh, by this Israeli missile. Uh, of course, later, I think it was like an hour or two later, they claimed it was a malfunction uh, rocket from Hamas. Uh, and then the next day we started seeing reports uh, all over Twitter that this hospital was actually still standing and the casualty and injured numbers were actually much lower. Um, so I think that seemed to be kind of this turning point where we all realized, or maybe it was just me having this epiphany, I don't know, but we realized that you know, not only kind of just speculating and commentating on this stuff, but a lot of this information and obfuscation could have been intentional uh, just to create some type of uh, distrust among the independent media community. So I don't know. I, what were your thoughts on that? Because if this was a, a psychological operation, like how do we make sure that we don't fall for something like this again? And how do we become, how do we just be much more cautious and, and all the reporting that we're taking in from even the legacy media. Yeah, I think this was a really good example of that because, I mean, as you noted, you had those initial reports that said that it was an Israeli airstrike that targeted this hospital. And obviously, whether it's 40 beheaded babies or it's 500 civilians killed in an airstrike, numbers like that and those claims really cause a reaction from people. And that's a good thing. It's good for people to hear something horrific and to say, oh no, that's terrible. I need to speak out against that. I think in this specific case, you do have misinformation on both sides from what I've seen. And, you know, I have people that I follow who have said various things about that, who I respect their opinion. And so for me coming to a conclusion on this, that's honestly something that I've kind of struggled with because, you know, I watch all of these different voices online and I think, okay, well, he said this and then she said that. And I think that that is very relevant for the average person, whether you're a journalist or whether you're just someone on the internet and you're trying to figure out what happened. And in a moment like that, you have so many things coming in. And it was initially, we had these reports of an Israeli airstrike. Then you had Israel came out and they notably, initially they blamed it on Hamas and then they blamed it on Islamic Jihad, this other offshoot militant group. So they were very specific with that. But what they did was they referred to a broadcast from Al Jazeera who broadcast this live and it showed what appeared to be a rocket of some sort shooting up into the air. And so Israel pointed to that and they said, okay, this proves that it was an errant rocket that hit this hospital or the parking lot and did the damage there. Well, then you had Al Jazeera come out and they said, well, actually we looked at the footage and it turns out that the rocket that they were referring to got shot down by the Iron Dome. Here, look at the proof of this. And now you have the New York Times, they did a version of it of their own and they were, they were talking about it specifically. So I think it's one of those things where you have a number of voices. And yes, obviously, when it comes to those initial reports, it's important to have caution on that, no matter which side it's coming from, no matter which side you align with. Because quite frankly, in a moment like that, 
if I were to hear a report that Israel had bombed a hospital, I wouldn't exactly say, oh, wait, no, really? Because Israel has a long and documented history of bombing hospitals. In fact, they then went on the next day to bomb a UN school and then to bomb a major church after that. So these initial reports that it was an Israeli airstrike, that really doesn't surprise anyone that is paying attention. It's more so about let's get down to the details of this. And this is still one of those cases where it still seems to be evolving. We're still finding out more information about it. And even if the death toll wasn't exactly what they said that it was that day, we are still seeing thousands of civilians die. So yeah, I think it is a learning lesson for anyone who is following this conflict to pay attention to what is coming out and the various reports and also to leave room for things to change and not to be completely hooked on one scenario or another, but to sort of pay attention to the overall lesson from that one. Right. I I think one of the points that you had mentioned about how the public perception has sort of changed uh, now as opposed to, say, nine years ago, um, with the you know, the advancements of social media and all these videos coming out, I think that's one of the reasons, or probably the reason, why we're seeing the propaganda machine go so hard to permeate the airwaves with these kind of stories, with the pro-Israel rhetoric, um, because it seems as though, at least when it comes to social media, that the the Israeli PR campaign is is kind of failing disastrously, as opposed to just a few years ago. I mean, uh, I, I just saw a report from Mint Press News uh, either earlier today or late last night, uh, where they had reported that the the Israeli troll farms that we know that the Israeli intelligence runs online, particularly on Twitter, is just flooding Twitter. Um, in the the Twitter notes, uh, community notes sort of section to try to shift the narrative because the PR campaign uh, is failing. And the one thing that I noted in the most recent article that I've written for the Free Thought Project was that so we're seeing all of this rhetoric in the media, obviously falling in lops and lockstep with the militarism, uh, the imperialism of the whole thing. But we're not really seeing them talk much about, I mean, there's a few pieces from, say, Reuters or uh, Associated Press, but not really talking about the fact that people around the world are realizing what's actually happening and they're rising up. Uh, The article that I wrote was particularly talking about the fact that we're witnessing globally the largest worldwide demonstrations in support of Palestine the largest global demonstrations since the mass protests around the world against COVID-19 mandates happening right now. Millions of people around the world, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands in various major cities um, from throughout the United States, Washington, D.C., to Los Angeles, to Houston, Texas, to Chicago, to Berlin, Germany, Dublin, Ireland, Karachi, Pakistan, even in cities like uh, Kyoto and Tokyo, Japan, which usually don't participate in these massive global protests against things of this nature. You don't see it that often in those kinds of cities. Even Tokyo and Kyoto and Osaka are participating in these massive global protests in pretty much every continent around the world with a a human population, obviously not Antarctica, but you know, every, every part of the world where there are people, there are thousands of people in the streets demonstrating against this. And we see pretty much no mention of it in U.S. media. Like I said, there are little pieces here and there, Reuters. I think New York Times did a small piece. But, you know, we see it in RT covered it. Uh, DW in Germany covered it. Uh, There are news outlets elsewhere covering it, but we're seeing none of it in the mainstream media talking about, yeah, there are millions of people around the globe rallying in support of the Palestinian people because they're seeing what's happening and they're tired of it. Yeah, yeah, it really does seem like we are seeing much more of a movement there. And I do agree that the media coverage of it all is very telling on this one, specifically here in the United States. You know, we had more than a thousand people take to Washington, D.C. to 
protests, calling for a ceasefire, calling for an end to Israeli occupation. And one of the main reasons that they didn't get media coverage was because they were with the organization Jewish Voice for Peace. And so you're seeing a rising up, not just of regular people, but also of Jews in America and in Europe, where they're saying, no, we don't want to be a part of this. A big call from them is not in our name. Stop saying that you, being Israel, are carrying out these bombings for all Jewish people. No, we don't want a part of that. And so I think it's incredibly notable when you have protesters, you know, holding a rally at the U.S. Capitol, several of them were arrested at the U.S. Capitol and the media still didn't want to talk about it. And I can imagine if we were in a different situation where you had over a thousand Arabs who got together and decided to protest for Palestinian freedom, you would have had many politicians, many Republicans who would be freaking out saying these people are calling for, you know, jihad around the world and we need to put a stop to this as we've seen some of those calls for some of the protest in the United States that have happened. You've, you've seen politicians who get very concerned about this and claim that this is something that we need to be worried about. But when you've got people that are calling for peace, it is incredibly notable because it's a reminder that more people are waking up to the need for peace and the need to be anti-war. And that's not just anti-one war, as you have some politicians who will say that they're against sending more funding to Ukraine, but then they'll turn around and send that funding to Israel and not even worry about it. Uh -huh. But to be against all wars and to be against this road that we seem to be on to World War III at the moment, you know, Joe Biden gave his speech in the Oval Office last week. And he has only done that one other time. Notably, the only other time he did a speech in the Oval Office was when he was calling for Congress to raise the debt ceiling last summer. So it's kind of ironic that he then decided that he needed the symbolism of him being back in the Oval Office. He holds this primetime address and he calls for Congress to pass over $105 billion in funding for Ukraine Israel and Taiwan. And so it's almost as if the Biden administration has just lined up the road to World War III and they're like, pick a conflict, we'll get there. Because in every single one, you see these places where the US is toying with these proxy wars. And on the other side of that is Russia, China, and Iran. And they're all allies who are going to help each other out if the other one gets into a direct conflict with the United States. And so I think the hope is certainly that people start to realize even just beyond what they're seeing when they look at the bloodshed that's happening in Gaza right now, that they start to realize, wait a second, this needs to be stopped everywhere, not just in this one region of the world, that this is something we really need to stand up against because humanity, as we know it, literally relies on it. Right. That's one thing that I had mentioned earlier uh, in a post that I had shared about uh, these dangerous games that Washington is playing, sort of shifting the conversation now from Israel to Ukraine. Uh, I just saw a report out of uh, antiwar.com a little earlier today. The uh, report details how the CIA is backing Ukraine's assassinations inside Russia, talking about how the CIA is providing and has been since the 2014 coup, uh, this uh, sort of clandestine assistance, intelligence and what have you, uh, to Ukrainian uh, intelligence and, and special tactics units and things of that nature to carry out these attacks. And the point that I had made when I shared it was I said that at this point, Russia essentially has every excuse to launch direct attacks against the U.S., though we should hope that that does not happen. But it's a very dangerous game that Washington is playing right now. Because imagine if just for a moment the shoe was on the other foot and Russia were backing subversive assets in, say, Mexico that were then coming across the southern border and carrying out attacks inside the U.S., not just attacking civilians, but assassinating prominent officials, bombing government buildings, the Pentagon would have carte blanche for a full-scale invasion of Russia. And so why should it be any different that it's now on the other foot that the U.S. is backing this kind of action in Ukraine? It's a very dangerous kind of brinkmanship. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that the Washington Post came out with that initial report and then antiwar.com covered it. And it always makes me wonder when they do put out these reports, the timing of it, right? Because the Washington Post doesn't have to print that. They can talk about whatever right. they want. But when they put out a story like that, it kind of makes you wonder, why are they doing this and what is of the timing of it? And it takes me back to January of 2022 when Yahoo News, of all places, reported that the CIA had been training paramilitaries in Ukraine since 2015, so after the 2014 U.S. back coup there. And they were talking about it from the standpoint of saying, you know, if there is a war between Russia and Ukraine, then these CIA trained units are going to be there to help out Ukraine. So as if to kind of cheerlead them on. But the admission that they were making was that the CIA had been heavily involved in Ukraine for several years now. And then when we get this story, this is something that I was actually living in Russia at the time uh, when Daria Dugina was killed last year, I believe last August. And she was killed after a woman, actually, who had come over the border, planted a bomb on her car. And they thought that it was going to be her father, Alexander Dugin, in the car. But she, at the last minute, had traded places with him and he went in a different car. And anyways, long story short, she was the one who was killed. And in the aftermath of that, the immediate media coverage, as they always do when it comes to Russia, they say, oh, well, it must have been something Putin had done or it must be something that Russia did. You know, they attack their own infrastructure. They kill their own people. And this has to be a case of that. And the media just ran with that. And for anyone paying attention, they're like, well, Russia is at war with Ukraine right now, so why wouldn't it be someone from Ukraine who would carry out this attack? And then the question becomes, okay, well, if Ukraine is doing it, if they're behind it, and they carried out another attack killing a journalist, Vladimir Tatarsky, as well, and they're looking at the specific attacks and they're saying, okay, well, if Ukraine is carrying out them, then what does the United States know? At the very least, if the CIA isn't involved, if the United States isn't involved whatsoever, what did they know? Because the U.S. is involved and has admitted that it's involved in all intelligence gathering for Ukraine. You know, they are propping up Ukraine's government and its military. They know everything. So this admission that the CIA is directly involved in some of these targeted killings, yeah, it is a reminder that the U.S. isn't just carrying out a proxy war, but they're actually actively attacking Russia on their end. It just may not be the U.S. military directly doing it. The only thing that's saving us here is that Russia is at its core when it comes to the Russian government. They are very logical and methodical. You look at someone like Vladimir Putin, and I know a lot of people may not agree with this, but he has shown that he really cares about being incredibly methodical and making sure that everything is documented. That's why you see when it comes to the United Nations Security Council, the average American says the Security Council, we don't care about that. Russia cares about that more than anyone else in this world because it is their way of documenting every single thing. That's why they are so meticulous when it comes to everything that the U.S. does on their end and documenting it because that's their way of saying, hey, we are getting this on record. And so I think the United States is incredibly fortunate in this case that they are not dealing with a country that is going to see the assassination of one individual and then go to World War III over that. But it does, of course, create a lot of concern when you have the Washington Post essentially bragging about this and saying, hey, look at what the CIA is doing and expecting that there is going to be no blowback for that when inevitably there will be. It's just that on Russia's end, what they're doing is they're using it to continue it in their campaign for other countries to get away from relying on the United States. And they have been very successful in that campaign. Right. And um, boy, you said a lot there. I, I don't really have much of a follow up. But, you know, when you were talking about this, it, it certainly made me wonder if we we're ever going to know what really happened to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, even though, you know, Victoria Newland and, and Biden both kind of hinted directly that they were uh, planning on <laughs> uh, taking it out in one way or another. Uh, but, you know, it that, of course, is uh, neither here nor there. And this is something that we're not even talking about anymore. It doesn't seem like that's even on anybody's radar. Um, 
But last week, we were talking to Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, and uh, we were discussing this $106 billion uh, national security funding request uh, that the Biden administration has pulled up. And it, this isn't only just for Ukraine, you know, which for a year and a half now has been, you know, quote, a black hole of money, as uh, one U.S. official has said, and not only to Israel, but is also uh, a portion of that that's going to be sent apparently to Taiwan. Now, I know China's government, uh, the CCP, has committed to unifying Taiwan with the mainland of China and has been escalating a military buildup there, uh, more or less to, to threaten Taiwan. Um, obviously, the U.S. and Taiwan have been stable allies for years and has vowed to defend Taiwan. But you'll have to forgive my ignorance on this one because uh, I don't have a lot of uh, knowledge about this topic, but can you maybe shed some context here as to maybe what the bigger picture is going on? And, it, you know, is this, I know there's talk about this being another potential forever war. Uh, is that kind of aligned with what you're saying as well? Yeah. So when it comes to the situation with Taiwan, I think it's actually really interesting because first and foremost, under U.S. official policy, they recognize the one China policy. Now, the one China policy states that Taiwan is already part of China. It just hasn't been officially reunified with it. Now, that reunification is not supposed to be carried out by the military. It's supposed to be carried out when they both agree to be reunified with each other. But the United States on its part recognizes that Taiwan is part of China when it comes to uh, recognizing the one China policy. Now, that gets a little murky when it comes to how the U.S. has relations with Taiwan, and it really means that the U.S. does not carry out direct diplomatic talks with Taiwan, but yet they have military relations right. with it. I don't quite understand how they justify all of sure. that. But this actually came to a head under the Trump administration because you know Donald Trump, he comes in and he says, oh, well, you know, if we want to have talks with Taiwan, we're going to have talks with Taiwan. He broke decades of diplomatic policy by having a member of his administration have direct talks with an official from Taiwan. And then the Biden administration came in and made it all the more worse. If you'll remember Nancy Pelosi last year going to, she decided she was going to go to Taiwan, almost created an international incident yes. where everyone was watching her plane to see, is it going to land or is it going to be blown up by China? Because technically she was encroaching upon Chinese airspace and they had told her and the United States do not come here. So she got out of that one alive. And then we had a few other U.S. officials who went there. And I think this one is really notable because it is an area of conflict between the United States and China, obviously, now that it has been ramped up to this point, because China is looking at it and they're saying, well, you respect the one China policy, you acknowledge that Taiwan is part of China, and yet you have Biden doing an interview where he said, oh yeah, we would send troops to Taiwan to defend it from China. So Beijing is going, what are you actually doing here? What is your actual policy? They're trying to figure it out on their end. You also have the United States increasing its military presence in the region right around China in their backyard. Again, going back to the point of if this were happening to the United States, they would be losing their minds in Washington about this. But yet it's OK when we, you know, build NATO up to Russia's doorstep or send our ships right in China's backyard. That's not a threat there. That's just bringing freedom and democracy. But when it comes to the situation with Taiwan, one thing that I think is notable is the United States relies so heavily on China when it comes to trade that most Americans don't really even know how to grasp that. If we were to go to war with China, prices on everything would skyrocket. You would see a lot of struggle all around. So it's kind of comical when the U.S. acts like they are going to take on China because it's like the process of decoupling from China is so many 
decades away from actually being a reality. And we're not even going towards that right now. So it just becomes, in my opinion, another neocon talking point at the end of the day, where it seems like, especially on the political level, even for some of the, and I don't mean to hate on Republicans, even for the Republicans who are saying, you know, we don't want war with Russia, we don't want funding for Ukraine, they'll turn right back around and say, oh, we support funding for Israel, or we support standing up for Taiwan, standing up against China. It has almost become another establishment talking point where people don't quite realize the hypocrisy that they are giving into on that one. So I have one last question here, Rach, and uh, it's probably more of a personal question. We are near the wrapping up point here. But while I was looking up some stuff today to prepare for our conversation, I found an article about you from Texas Monthly. And, you know, I, of course, have no idea how big this publication is, nor uh, if it's even worth talking about. But I noticed that you were in the crosshairs of the story, and I thought it was a bit ironic because... I know how much you love your state of Texas and how proud you are to be a Texan. But in this article, they basically go as far as to claiming that you have uh, reflexive pro uh, reflexive pro Putin posture <laughs> and the basically, the, uh, yes. yeah, the sum of the um, just to sum it up for the audience, the article details some of your origin story, uh, even mentions us working for us for a bit. And then more or less kind of subtly tries to make the assertion that you're uh, a Russian propagandist. They were mostly nice about it, but it kind of raises this question, which I'm sure you've been asked before. Um, how do you respond when people do make that accusation about you being some type of pro-Russia asset just because you work for RT? All right. Funny story on that one. I will address that. I don't know if I've actually talked about this publicly. So in early 2022, as some people listening may know, I previously worked with RT America in Washington, D.C., and they shut down on March 3rd of 2022. And in the aftermath of that, I had every mainstream media publication reaching out to me for a comment because I was one of the few people who worked there who was very outspoken on social media. I was one of the few who had at least somewhat of a presence, if you can consider it that on, you know, like Twitter and Instagram. And so I get all these requests. I mean, I'm talking the New York Times, CNN, they really lobbied hard for an interview, but it was one of those segments where I knew that they were going to put me up against someone or a couple of people who were just so anti-Russia. I was like, I'm not doing this. Not to say that I would come from a pro-Russia perspective, but to say I knew what they were going to try to do with that interview. So I agreed to two interviews, just two. One of them was with the New York Times. The other one was with Texas Monthly. And the reason I agreed to the one with Texas Monthly was because as a kid growing up in Texas, we got this magazine every single month. And it was something I always looked forward to. And so I thought, I was like, you know what? If they want to do a feature on me, that's so cool. You know, something in my home state, all this stuff. Now, I thought that it was going to be a legitimate piece. I actually thought that the one from the New York Times was going to be the one to be a hit piece. And that's the one that I was a little bit more cautious on because I'm like, well, I know how they do things. But the reporter from the New York Times, you know, she reached out and she was like, look, I don't want to just talk about, you know, RTMA. America closing down. I want to talk about what it was like to actually work there. And to her credit, she did a very fair job. That was probably the most fair write-up I have ever read about RT as a whole. She talked to multiple people that worked there and talked about, you know, our stories, how we came there. And when I was talking to her, she was like, wow, that's actually really cool that you were able to come out of college and to get a job that gave you all of this experience that you would not have gotten if you would have worked for, you know, a mainstream media publication, a local news station, you name it. Well, then there's the Texas Monthly article. And yeah, that was one of those things I was in the depths of despair over just having lost a, a job that I loved. And I was talking to the reporter there and he seemed genuine and like he wanted to write a story. And he did challenge me on some things, you know, when it came to, of course, that was initially when the war had really kicked off and early 2022. And so he did challenge me on some things. And so I expected that there was going to be some pushback. I did not expect all that he wrote in that article. I will say, I remember just reading that and being like, oh, this is, this is why I don't do interviews with mainstream publications because he 
went after my character or attempted to in every possible way that he could as you know as you're noting there he's basically saying that i am a putin apologist and that i'm still parroting russian propaganda even though i had uh, lost my job at the time with rt america right. and it was funny i will note just one thing he reached out to my professors, like literally the college that I went to in Texas, he reached out to my professors <laughs> to try to get their commentary to talk about what a propagandist I was. Great comments. <laughs> <laughs> like outstanding. Literally, literally one of the professors said, and he did mention this to me, one of the professors was like, She's one of the best students I ever have. Will you tell her I said hi? <laughs> um, and so that part. Fail. Fail. That part was funny, uh, but when it comes to that overall accusation, that is certainly nothing new. I think a lot of times I just encourage people to look at my work, to look at what I put out there, you know, being very prevalent on social media. I'm like, hey, you know, watch my videos on YouTube, see what I'm actually saying. And yeah, you may not agree with all of it. You may not even agree with what I have to say about Russia. And that's fine and good. You know, it's up to people how they want to form an opinion on that. But I do think being in this position where I have worked for RT, one of the things that I've really emphasized has been I have the freedom to say what I want to say. I'm not, you know, sent a script and told that I must read it off my, you know, what I write and what I put out there is not double checked by the Russian government before <laughs> it is put on air. I can note that. And I, I can even say that having worked in Russia and working for the RT headquarters there, you know, when it comes to all of this and the ways in which it is directed, I did not feel pressure while I was there to say or do things a certain way. And I talked to multiple colleagues who were from, you know, the US, the UK, other places in Europe where they were sharing similar stories and they were in a position where their governments were targeting them even more so than the US government, which did not target me, but even more so than the US government was wanting to go after RT or any entity like that. So a long answer just to say that when it comes right down to it, you know, I always encourage people to do the research for yourself. If you don't agree with something that I'm saying, or if you don't agree with the fact that I work for RT, actually take the time to look at my work and to see just past that label that is presented with my name and then decide whether or not you want to follow me and continue to pay attention to my work from there. Well, there you go, guys. Some important perspective there uh, as far as uh, straight from the horse's mouth, straight from the Russian propagandist's mouth herself. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course, I'm kidding there. All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing the end. We wanted to take this time to remind you, if you found value in this conversation, please consider hitting that like button and subscribing to the Free Thought Project podcast on your preferred platform of choice. It's an easy, no-cost way to support us and ensure you never miss an episode. Also, the Free Thought Project operates primarily on the generosity of our listeners. If you believe in our mission and support our cause, please consider donating or subscribing by going to the membership tab at the top of our website. Your contributions ensure we are able to continue our important work having these important conversations and your donations help us do just that. Lastly, if you're part of an organization or own a business that aligns with our mission and values, we are currently inviting sponsorships for our podcast. This is a fantastic opportunity to promote your product or make your brand visible to our engaged audience while supporting meaningful discourse. Thank you for your support, Freethinkers, and as always, thank you for listening. Uh, why don't you take a second to tell people where they could follow your work? I know you have a Twitter um, at Rach Blevins, your Substack rachelblevins.com, but please share any other places you want people to follow you or anything else you'd like to plug. Yeah, yeah. And hey, I, I wear that uh, propagandist label with pride because it's uh it is a rare thing these days, but you know, when it comes to, or I guess I should say a rare thing to actually be legitimate in the place where you are still speaking truth. That's not something we always see right. in media, but when it comes down to social media, you're right. I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, also on Telegram, you can follow my channel. It's t.me slash Rach Blevins. And I have a group connected to that where there are a lot of breaking news updates there. If you want to keep up with the minute to minute updates, that is a good place to find it. But I usually share all of my work on Telegram. And then of course, 
Facebook and the others for as long as they will let me be there this time around. And weirdly enough, YouTube. I'm waiting for that YouTube crackdown. I know that it's coming at some point, but for now I'm there as well as Rumble, Rockfin, and Odyssey. Yes, and I I must also mention that your Twitter and Telegram have exploded over the past couple years, and rightfully so. You know, you've been ahead of the curve. Uh, You have your finger on the pulse, and uh, you're, you're doing great work, Rach. And uh, your communities, too, are very active, very vibrant. They're, I mean, it's crazy how much support that you're, you're getting, but it's wonderful and it's very much due. Um, so, you know, as somebody who's watched your career uh, since before you even wrote for us here at the Free Thought Project when you're with Truth and Media, it's been truly impressive. You know, that the five-year stretch with RT, you were a co-host for uh, of Boom Bust for a year there. I mean, Moscow, all of it. Like, it's just, it's truly a blessing. Uh, and I'm so happy that I was somehow, some way, a part of it. The Free Thought Project has been a part of it. And of course, you know, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we just had the five-year anniversary of The Purge. I know. <laughs> it's, it seems like you've recovered and you're doing well. And uh, Rach, you're a wealth of information. I think I said this last time as well, but in my opinion, you're definitely within the top 10 geopolitic analysts in the indie, indie media landscape. So Thank you very much for your time. And it's, uh, as always, been a pleasure to talk with you today. Well, of course. Thank you so much for having me. And I would encourage anyone listening to go check out the Free Thought Project, check out Police the Police, check out Jason's social media and all of the memes and content that he shares there, because I think that there's a very important information resource, you know, when it comes to social media and Don's as well. Um, what is put out there and go beyond just what the algorithm shows you. Because I think that if there's anything that we've learned over the last five years since we were all banned by a lovely, lovely Facebook, but we've learned that the algorithm is going to show you what it wants you to see. So if you have a creator out there or you have a media publication that you follow and you're kind of thinking, oh, I haven't seen anything from them in a moment. Be sure to look them up and to give them a like and a comment and your support because that is desperately needed in alternative media these days. Every voice is incredibly important, especially in the world that we live in as we're talking about all of this misinformation. You know, the truth seekers out there are more important than ever. Here, here. Well said. And uh, Don, do you want to take a second to also uh, share your social media? Uh, yeah, I mean, people can uh, find me on Twitter at Don Vi Jr. D O N V I A J R. Uh, I have a Telegram page, Break the Matrix, where I mainly nowadays just share stuff from other pages because of the the, the Facebook ban that has impacted my. Uh, be ability to pretty much reach anyone um but uh you know i do share stuff on telegram and of course if you want to follow me on uh you know free thought project follow the free thought project and you know check out the rundown live where i co-host our podcast uh whenever we go live (laughs) wonderful yes well there you guys have it thank you so much for joining us this week and we'll see you guys next time